Hey there, it's Pat Miller, the Idea Coach, host of the Pat Miller Show. This show is for small business owners so they can make their business dreams come true. Our slogan is Don't Grow It Alone. And what you're going to hear is a broadcast of our show that's carried in 25 cities around the country. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. Hope you love it. All right, let's go. Broadcasting from the small business capital of America, this is WIIFM Milwaukee, an idea coach station. You're on the small business journey, and sometimes you need a dose of creativity and a helping hand, and that's why we're here. Welcome to the Pat Miller Show, where we build big ideas live without a net, so you can turn your small business dreams into reality. You share what you're building, and we will rally to make it bigger, better, faster, more. And it's not just what will be, we also want to hear your wins. So we're all reminded that small business success is here for every single entrepreneur that gets clear, works hard, and doesn't quit. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Pat Miller, the Idea Coach. If you want to be a part of the show, reserve your time now, patmillershow.com. You can also find the links inside your podcatcher so you can give us a 24-star review or say lovely things or whatever you might be able to do to help us grow. I appreciate it because we are just, 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 just in the infancy of the show. We're just starting our mission to serve small business owners at scale and you are super cool for being here right now. Before we get into our callers, we have three standing by today, which is awesome. Karen and Michelle, and we'll also talk to Paula. Uh, we've even got a small business celebration today. I want to let you in to something that's happening. So if you listen to the show, you heard a few episodes back where I announced, hey, everybody, I got a TEDx, and I was all excited. Well, I want to talk about the process of doing a keynote, at least my process for doing a keynote, because I want to share what I've been thinking about and what I've been going through and how I'm getting ready for the talk. So if you get the opportunity to be on stage and share what you believe, that maybe this would be instructive for you. I am not a public speaking trainer. I'm not the knower of all things, but maybe it will help you because I was a broadcaster for 22 years and I was trained on how to speak and present in front of people. So maybe this will help you out. So the first thing that happens is you apply on the talk and then someone reaches out to you and says, hey, Pat Miller, guess what? You get to do a TEDx. And the first thing that you do is you dance around the living room. Like literally that's what happened. I freaked out. I couldn't believe that I was going to get a chance to do a TEDx. So first of all, it was super exciting. But then, shortly after, here's the next thing that happens. Oh, my God. This is when they're going to find out I'm a fraud, right? Imposter syndrome, like, from the top rope, came down and bang, just like a wrestler right in the center of the ring. And for about, I don't know, day and a half, I thought to myself, I can't do this. I can't, I can't do this. They're going to know that I'm, I'm a fraud, So after I calmed down about that and started to think about, okay, what did I want to say? Things started to come to me. So I had about 
eight weeks from knowing until delivering the TED Talk. And the way that I thought about it was I'm going to take a month just to let the thoughts come to me. Because I figured, kind of like mining for gold, I'm going to go get a bunch of gravel, like all the gravel I can get. And then I'll shake it through the little basket thing and the gold will emerge. Like I didn't want to put too much pressure on myself to just come up with the nuggets right away. So I put in a bunch of gravel, more gravel, more gravel. And there were days that I didn't think about it. There were nights when I couldn't sleep and I had to come down to my desk and just write for two hours. That happened. There were days when great ideas came to me on the golf course And there were days when I couldn't come up with anything. But because I had the luxury of a little bit of time and I wasn't putting a ton of pressure on myself, I just let it kind of come to me. Then about a month out, I thought to myself, okay, this was like three weeks ago. I got to draft this thing. So I read the TED Talk book, very helpful. And I started to put together the structure. And the way I structured it was, here's why I'm talking about this. Here's the problem. Here's what people are doing right now to solve the problem. And here's how I'm solving the problem in the call to action. So that's kind of how I structured it. My part, how big is the issue, what people are doing about it now, what I think we should do about it, and then the close. And as I started to write the speech, here's something that I did that maybe it's different than what other people do, but this is what I really believe in. I didn't start practicing on my feet with the blocking and the movement and the hand gestures until I knew the message was what I wanted it to be. There's a lot that goes into presenting a speech, and a lot of that is memorization and moving. So I wanted to get that stuff down, but I didn't want to get it down until I knew that the message was exactly what I wanted it to be. So in this eight-week period, I took a month just to let the message come to me, And then I took another two weeks just to hammer on the message and iterate and draft and draft and draft. And then I didn't do it on my feet until four or five days ago, maybe 10 days out, was the first time I delivered it on my feet. So this process of going from message to delivery, I thought of it like a funnel. The message is at the top of the funnel and the delivery was down at the bottom. And if you have an opportunity like this, I encourage you to do the same thing. Because we've seen someone speak before and maybe they look a little nervous or uh, they move around a little too much or they lose their place maybe once. I think people can overlook that if the message is really good and super compelling. That's the way I chose to look at it. Now, in a couple of days, I'll be standing on the red carpet. Oh, my God, I can't believe it. And I will be sharing with the world why solopreneurs need to have a community because it's what I really believe in. And I will report back about how it went. But fingers crossed, going to go out there. I'm going to give it my best shot. And we'll see what happens. Hope that was helpful. Okay, let's start the show. And with that, let's start this episode of the show. Calling in first, Karen Yuso. Karen, thank you for joining the Pat Miller Show. Tell us who you are, what you do, and then we'll talk about how we can help you today. Hello, Pat. Thanks for having me. I am Karen Yuso, the owner of First Look Family Law, which is a more or less divorce 
family law firm in Brookfield, Wisconsin. I do low conflict divorce mediation, collaborative law, cooperative law, emphasis, or as you like to say, emphasis on <laughs> low conflict family law services. But I really primarily do low conflict mediation and divorce. Okay. So what's on your mind? How can we help you? Well, I have had this firm four years and I, uh, I guess I'm more well known in my community for the past 30 years I've been doing high conflict litigation. I do a lot of cases that involve mental health issues, substance abuse issues, domestic violence issues. So how do you do those low conflict, you say? And in fact, I've been kind of segueing out of a lot of those high conflict cases. I still have cases that involve those issues, but we are handling them in a more low conflict way. But my um, reputation, so to speak, in the community is that I do those and I do them well. Um, and I'm just handling them differently. The problem is the people on the other side are not handling them differently. And so uh, more and more, I am facing stress because sometimes I'm the first person that gets hired on a case. And then when the spouse hires their attorney, um, it's not somebody I want to deal with. And at that point, you've already been retained. You've started to do work. And uh, it's it's hard to then say to your client, you know what? I don't really want to be on this case anymore because I don't want to deal with that attorney. And on the other hand, I don't want to put it into my retainer agreement. I will not handle your case if that person's on the other side. Mm -hmm. But I pretty much do. I pretty much want to say I don't want to help you if I'm going to have to deal with that attorney. So I'm trying to figure out a way um, of professionally extricating myself either before or during uh, these kinds of cases. So, uh, cause I, I call it my lifty list. Life is too <laughs> effing short, um, to, to deal with those people anymore. And I, because I'm just trying to figure out professionally how to do that. Cause it's not, it's not like sales, right? You, you can choose not to interact with certain people. You can turn down a client. I figured out how to do that, but how to, how do you get out of a case or not take a case when you don't know exactly who's going to be the professional on the other side and you don't want to deal with them. Okay. So the first thing that comes to mind, and I want to make sure I understand this, you used to be high conflict. Now you're low conflict. And when someone says, I want you to be my lawyer to represent me in the divorce, the spouse sometimes will go get a high conflict lawyer that life is too short to deal with. And you no longer want to take the case. That's the situation, correct? Yes. Okay. So who is your bulldog? If you want to be in the lane of I'm the low conflict person, Shouldn't you have a yin to your yang of this is my partner, Al, he's my bulldog, so you can retain our firm, I do the low conflict, he or she does the high conflict, and that's how it rolls. Do you have a referral partner like that? Um, I do, but that would be outside of my firm. In the last year, I hired not one, but two people because I was hard to turn away business. As I've decided to do just low conflict, I thought, well, I hate to turn away cases. So I hired people mm -hmm. to train them and have them do the high conflict business. But you know what? They couldn't do it. And I don't have 20 years to teach them what I know. And so uh, in the economy being what it is, I also don't have $20 million to pay them right. to do what I know. And so so um, what I found is that I actually make more money when I don't have partners. So uh, the idea of turning away the business, you know, ended up being more economic for me than than keeping it and just having somebody else in my firm do it. So, yes, I'm making referrals, but I don't make money off those referrals. It's not part of the code of ethics in lawyering. 
So uh, the, I just send that business away. But again, what happens if I'm already on the case? So, so clients are coming to me and then basically leaving because those lawyers are coming in after I've already been retained. I've already started to do work. Um, so there's a lot of uh, uh, whiplash, so to speak. Could you take a client on a contingency basis? I will be your uh, lawyer, provided the other side isn't one of these 10 law firms or whatever it is, such that you're giving them a contingency saying, I will do this if, and then if they take you and it turns out to be one of the people you don't want to deal with, then you go to your referral bulldog, even if you don't get the money. You're telling me that life is too short to deal with these people regardless of the money. Yes, you want to keep the money, but in a perfect world, you want to make sure that you have uh, a really solid client base that doesn't make you crazy. So I didn't know that you couldn't get a referral fee by referring your business to someone else. So that's good to know. But let me ask a different question. Um, is this business worth it? Could you take people on a contingency basis saying, I'll be your lawyer if and only if it's a low conflict lawyer on the other side and if it's a high conflict lawyer on the other side, that's a special thing. And I always hand people off to my bulldog named Sally. She's the specialist of high conflict lawyering. So you're like making it clear to the client that that's not what I do. You need a specialist to do that. And if they pick one of these lawyers that's in that vein, I'm responsible to give you to this high conflict lawyer. Do you know what I mean? I I do. And I can. Um Again, the problem is, do I hand them the list of names or do I put it in the retainer agreement? Here's the list of people that allow me to get off your case. Because as a mediator, it's not really a problem because mm -hmm. I have both parties and um, I'm the only person. But as a lawyer, I have to file a notice of retainer. And it's not a simple process to get out of a case. You have to be able to withdraw. You have to file a stipulation. The court has to approve it. The judge has to sign an order. Um, it's not just a phone call or a letter. It's a process. And so in order to explain to a court why I'm getting out of a case or to a client, um, there has to be some sort of protocol. And one of those would be you have a limited retainer agreement. The retainer agreement could say um, the client is hiring you for the limited purpose of doing a a program or a process in low conflict only without naming names, but then it's sort of, um, it's very vague and, and gives you a lot of power as an attorney and then maybe doesn't instill a lot of trust in the client. So what if you did this? What if you changed your onboarding process and had your first interaction with a potential client to be a two-week, three-week airtight interface with them to get them ready for the divorce process? that would give the other side the time to retain counsel. And you're not saying you're going to represent them in the divorce. You're going to get them ready for the divorce process. And then if it turns out that the other side is someone you want to deal with, then you can deal with them. Or if it's not, you tell the client during that prep process, if one of these other lawyers turns out to be high conflict, it's in your best interest to use a high conflict lawyer. And here's who will represent you in the trial. I would say that would probably work 50% of the time mm -hmm. because 50% of the time when clients hire me, their spouses hire their attorneys uh, pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. But the other 50% of the time, they don't. Um, they wait and they wait and they wait and they try to work with us. And then when, then when I introduce to them the idea that they don't like, which is 
it could be months in the process before they hear something they don't like. That's when they hire their attorney. And by then I've already, this client's already invested probably thousands of dollars in me um, to get them to that point. And it's only when their spouse hears something that they don't like uh, because, you know, people have their own opinions about what they want for outcome. And it was only when I've said, oh, but by the way, this is a 25-year marriage. And yes, you're probably going to pay spousal support. They get mad and then they go get lawyers and those lawyers are ugly. And so um, now my clients got three, four months invested in me and several thousand dollars. And I should say to them, oh, by the way, I'm not going to keep representing you because your spouse has now hired, you know, angry bulldog lawyer. And as your retainer agreement says, I won't take this to trial and I won't be on the other side of this. So that's really, that's really the problem is that that other spouse can hire their attorney at any point in time in the process. And there's no way for me to know if they will, when they will, who they will. Um, and I don't want to take these cases to trial anymore. I'm okay. done with it. Okay. So that's the verb. Uh, an old consultant of mine always used to say, get to the verb, like get on with it. What's the real issue here? And the real issue here is not necessarily uh, high conflict lawyers. It's that you should be a mediator and that's it. What happens to your business if you're just a mediator? Well, quite a bit of it goes away. Um, but you're right. Maybe that's, is that it? Then I just say, I, I never have to have a lawyer on the other side if I'm only doing a mediation. I yeah. mean, and that, that's true. That's, that's certainly solving part of the problem. It, it solves a lot of the problem because if someone <laughs> needs to go to trial, you don't even do that anymore. So what if you repositioned yourself? Just follow me here down the uh, you know yellow brick road of what ifs. Okay. But if you repositioned saying, at first look, family law, we understand friends drift apart. And when a marriage has to end, we do it through mediation. That's all we do. If things escalate and you need to go to trial, I got people for that. But I'm on the planet to help friends that drift apart end a marriage in a low-conflict manner. Now, this is going to take a lot of shoe leather and elbow grease for you to get out there and position yourself that way. But I've had the pleasure to know Karen for a while, and we've talked for a while that your candle is just blown out on conflict mediation. You just don't want to do the high conflict stuff anymore. So I would be interested to see what happens if you cut off that segment of the business and how long it would take to recover the revenue such that you could do what you do every day and love it. Because one thing that many small business owners forget, me included, I'm not picking on you, Karen, is that we get to pick. We get to pick what we do. If you wanted to be law firm and hot dog stand, you could do that tomorrow if you wanted to. So what would happen if you made that purposeful shift and loved your business again? Well, it's a reinvention, but I'll, I'll add one caveat, which is there, there is one segment of the high conflict, I guess, category of business that I like. And that is, I like helping people who are married to addicts. And that is to say their spouses are, uh, you know, diseased. So they have addiction mm -hmm. and I have a lot of experience, you know, in my family and in my, my practice with that uh, pathology. And I have um, some ability to help those families. And I like, I like that in mediation, I'm helping people going through divorce, but it's not, you know, there's a lot of people with my skill set, and I don't feel like it's um, uh, maybe uh, such a unique skill set. But yeah, that pathology, that is a unique skill set. And I have something extra to bring to the table. 
but I can't control who the lawyer is going to be on the other side. So if I say to you, okay, I'm willing to give up 99% of the high conflict cases, but I still want to keep helping families mm-hmm. who have addiction in their, in their uh, uh, domain now solve my problem. Okay. So here's how you do that. You run for office as the low conflict, <laughs> you, you run for office as the low conflict family mediator, right? When friends grow apart, this is what we do. And what you said, just to shine a light on it, I don't like high conflict cases unless I'm helping someone escape an addictive scenario. That speaks to me. That is worth more than the money. So what if your business was high conflict or low conflict mediation and your pro bono work was to help addicts get out of bad marriages? Because you're saying it's worth the money to do that, even though it's high conflict. It is, but I can't do it for pro bono because that's the time commitment is too high. But but it's worth maybe, are you saying I need to reconsider whether it's worth the aggravation of dealing with those other attorneys? Uh, all I'm saying is that you're saying uh, I don't want to do high conflict for a living. So maybe you have one pro bono case every time period. I don't know how long it takes, but the only pro bono that you take on is because of addicts. You're saying that that speaks to you and it's worth more than the money. So if you're listening to the show and you're kind of listening back and thinking, what are we trying to do here? What we're trying to do is find what is the lane that Karen gets to pick so she can run for office. I say it all the time. So she can run for office as the person that helps families that grow apart. And amicably. Oh, and I will also, with my massive skill set, feed my passion to help people get out of addictive relationships. And I do that at low or discounted or pro bono. You can figure that stuff out. But you won't go out on your website and say, hey, everyone, I help addicts get out of marriages. No, that's not what we're doing here. That's just a piece that you do with your time and talent that speaks to you more than the money. So I hope this helps. And maybe it's not realistic, but I'll challenge you to go to a cup of tea in a quiet place and say, okay, if in six months I had to be the family mediator and love my job again, what would I have to do to do that? Because you'll be way more focused, you'll love what you're doing, and you can still help the people that speak to you on the side, either at a pro bono or at a discounted rate. So Karen Uso, First Look Family Law, I hope the conversation helped. Thank you. It always helps to talk to you, Pat. You know, we're going to sneak in another caller before we go to break, and I'm excited to talk to Paula Holsberry. Paula, it's great to meet you. Welcome to the Pat Miller Show. Tell us who you are, what you do, and then we'll talk about how we can help you today. Yeah, great. Thank you for having me. Um, my name is Paula, and I'm the founder of Tessera Virtual Business Solutions. Um, and currently, I help teams improve their internal processes and increase their collaboration efforts. And I do this with a consulting and training model. That sounds great. So what's on your mind? How can we help you today? Well, most of my clients are users of a very specific work management software um, that they work on that platform. I'm certified to train in that software. And so my target client is um, a team who's currently using the software, but it's not using it to its full potential. And they just need help to um, create some different workflows and things that that will run more smoothly for them. They they understand the capabilities of the software. They're just not sure how to use it. So that's where I come in. So typically I work with companies of 10 to 20 employees or, or sometimes on a team of 10 to 20 employees within a bigger corporation. So pretty specific niche for as far as my clientele. So I can take five to six clients at a time um, 
each at a different point in the engagement. My engagements usually are anywhere from 30 days to 90 days okay. uh, to kind of get them up and running how they need to be. So recently I've had more inquiries from smaller startups with teams of two to five people. Um, they typically don't have the budget for my current packaging of services. So I've been toying with the idea of creating um, a self-paced course, a course possibly with some um, live office hours built in, something like that. Um, I just know from my own personal experience, since I am a team of a small team like that, that that would have really helped me. So I'm, I'm excited about the opportunity possibly to help people that are more like me in business because um, I see the potential of how I can help. But here's my big question. How do, do I how do I determine the um, the ROI of spending the money and the time to create a course, market a course? And, and then from there, is that is that going to confuse my current clients? How do I market on my website or out? What it what does that branding look like? Because I've always just worked with a certain piece, part, uh, part of the business world. Now I'm thinking the other, is that confusing? Anyway, lots of questions. I, that's a lot there. And I like the fact that you're entertaining it because too many people will say, nope, I'm for bigger businesses. I don't want the small people. And if you can get creative and realize that your knowledge and training is a commodity that can be turned into something that other people can consume, even if you're not present. You have a chance to expand your revenue without uh, proportionally expanding the amount of time that you're helping people. So couple thoughts. First thought is just because they're a smaller group doesn't mean they can't pay what the bigger groups pay. They may have fewer employees, but that doesn't mean that per seat they may be able to pay roughly what your bigger clients pay. So I don't want to discount the fact that if someone has five team members, well, that means I have to charge them half price, not necessarily. But more importantly, let's talk about the process. How much of this training process on the software is the same or similar, no matter what style of team they are or how big they are? Quite a bit, quite a bit. When, one of the things that I offer to my the, these larger teams is is just a customization that you wouldn't necessarily get with a course. So I go in, I do an audit of their current situation. Um, then we go from there. I listen to what they need specifically and we build out those workflows or we, you know, I, I consult on, you know, you could try this or this. But the basic use of the system that what I'm finding across the board is that that even though they're using it, they're not using it well. And so that basic stuff is the same. It's the customization that we would lose if I went to a course model. Well, not necessarily, because you could say here is the basic course. And if you're ready to step up to one-on-one -on -one time, that's the second part of our engagement. If you could, even for your bigger clients, there's an opportunity to somewhat customize the intro course and make it such that this automated intro course is the first step of engagement. Maybe that would alleviate some of the hours that you would spend on the front end, such that you say to the decision maker, listen, at Tessera, here's what we believe in. We need to raise the floor of everyone's knowledge of this software. Because if I can train everyone on this three-hour course, they're going to learn more in three hours than they've ever learned about this software. And as everyone's expertise raises then we can get into all of the ways we can customize this software and get more out of every employee. So if you go through and create this basics course, you could then say um, the basics course is available to anyone. 
that wants to take it, big or small. And then from there, there's customized one-on-one time where I can help you, whether you're a big team or a small team. And that may change the mathematics in your head of, well, I got to invest, you know, two grand to make this course happen, which I don't want to do unless I can use it. But if I could, you know, help out every one of my clients, no matter how big or small, it may be worth the investment. That's a great idea. That's a great idea to think of it a little bit differently, not two separate um, lanes to go down, but yeah. possibly audiences. Yeah. And yeah. What, one great. of the things that I think about is you talked about how do I talk about this without confusing my bigger clients? If you can infuse this course into the first step of whatever you're doing is that every person that comes to Tessera goes to the Tessera Academy, everyone big or small. And the Tessera Academy is however long it needs to be. And it's all automated and it has office hours to answer questions and all the stuff you would do in a course. But that way the Academy could be marketed on the website right along your one-on-one and custom services. It's just that first step. So no matter who you are, you can take the course, get what you need, and then it's up to the employer, big or small, whether they want you to continue with a personalized engagement. So just an, it's a, just kind of an upsell then to get the personalized, but then you're also getting the initial sale early on. So, Absolutely. Okay. The other strategies that are out there where you can start um, helping people that may not be able to spend your one-on-one rates is mastermind groups or group programs where you could pair uh, smaller employers together into a monthly cohort where you've got three employers that come together as a group and they just have a different set of office hours and maybe a monthly group meeting. So they don't get as much one-on-one time as a one-on-one client would. But group strategies are brilliant for someone like you because you could go to a smaller employer and say, listen, uh, I normally charge $500 an hour for the big boys, but you're smaller and I understand that. So here's what it's going to be. I'm going to charge $250, but you're in a group program with two other companies. Now, do the math. You got three people in a cohort, you're now making $750 an hour doing group training rather than $500 an hour one-on-one training. There are more moving parts and you'll have more mouths to feed, but dollar for dollar, hour for hour, you may end up making more money with less time and open the funnel. Because if you start the relationship with someone who has five or seven employees, by the time they have 20 or 30 employees, you're already their person, which would be fantastic. Yep. Great ideas. Great ideas. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh. It's my pleasure. And it's great to meet you. You didn't say where you're calling from. Where are you calling from? I live in North Texas. Yes. North Texas. Where at specifically? Um, actually, I live in the middle of nowhere, I like to say. <laughs> I live on a small farm, um, actually near Wichita Falls, north of Dallas. So okay. That gives you a little bit better uh, visual of where I am. I love it. I love it. Well, it is a pleasure to meet you. I love talking about how do we take knowledge and turn it into digital courses and group programming. So someone like you doesn't run into the trap of I'm out of hours, right? It'll Mm -hmm. stop us from growing. And I have to say it out loud because I say it to everybody when it's time to make courses, go look, go look up a guy named Jack Butcher from Visualize Value. He's the current overlord of monetizing your knowledge on the internet. He is the guy, Jack Butcher and Blatant Plug. We're going to have uh, an interview with him at the Idea Collective Retreat in early November. Paula Holsberry calling in from Texas. Great to meet you and thanks for coming on today. 
Thank you. Enjoyed it. We are having far too much fun on this episode of The Pat Miller Show after helping Karen and helping Paula. We've got someone who doesn't need our help. No. We got someone we need to learn from. A small business celebration with Michelle Vandehey is standing by. So if you want all of those feel-good endorphins and to realize that you too can be successful, we will do a small business celebration coming up next on this episode of the Pat Miller Show. Running a small business is lonely and hard. I mean, we know that, right? But did you know it doesn't have to be? Stop networking and start connecting with other entrepreneurs on the small business journey in the Idea Collective Small Business Incubator. In this exclusive worldwide community, we're sharing information, we're brainstorming together, and we're supporting each other through the highs and the lows of building your small business. Learn more about the group and get the feel of this show 24-7 in your small business. Visit ideacollectiveincubator.com. That's ideacollectiveincubator.com. Remember, it's your dream. Don't grow it alone. Welcome back to the Pat Miller Show, a show built just for you, the small business owner that's working hard to build your dream. We want the show to be in every, what it would it be, like mobile device? Is that what you say nowadays? It used to be a radio, but I'm old, so now it's a mobile device. But whatever it is that you listen to your podcasts on, we want it everywhere. And to do that, we need to let people know this show exists. And the best way to do that is to rate and review it on the podcatcher where you uh, listen to this episode on. So if it's iTunes or Spotify or whatever, give us a thumbs up and a 19-star review. We appreciate that. Also, make sure you click subscribe. That way you don't miss a weekly episode. We send them out on Monday afternoons at uh, 1 o'clock Central. And when you're ready, visit patmillershow.com and book your time to ask a question, solve a problem, or do a small business celebration. And up next, we have one of those, Michelle Vandehey. Michelle, before we hear the celebration, everyone needs to know about you. Who are you? What do you do? Where are you? And then we will celebrate. All right. I am Michelle Vandehey, and I am in the Sauk Prairie area, which is just northwest of Madison. And I, my company is Light of Love Coaching. And oftentimes, many women go through life kind of just going status quo through life and, you know, have kids, have a good job, maybe have a partner. And then something happens in their life and they start questioning, what do I want or who am I and, and what do I actually want to do with my life? Mm. And so those are the women that I really help. Oftentimes there's something that happens in their life. That's a catalyst for them asking themselves those questions. And I help guide them to who they really are and where they want to go so they can make a bigger difference. Brilliant, brilliant, and so important. And you've got a celebration. So what are we celebrating? Yeah, so I am. I just had the best weekend ever. I got to have a weekend where I got to like fill my own cup and also be able to like help others as well. So I just got back from an adoptive mom's retreat um, because both of my kids were adopted, and. I got, so I got to participate and like take in all of the goodness, but then I also got to guide meditations throughout the weekend. And that is only the second time I've been able to do it in person. 
Uh, and so it was super fabulous to be able to do that in person. I actually did some trauma sensitive yoga in person as well. Um, so that was super fun. And then on Sunday, I went straight from the retreat and I went to my first keynote speaking engagement for Michaela's Grace, which is a Madison um, owned organization that they do NICU care packages and bereavement boxes for pregnancy and infant loss. And October is Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Month. And so I got to be the keynote speaker for that on Sunday. And every, it just was like, everything was like firing in all cylinders this weekend. And it felt so good to be able to like pour into and feel poured into. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of shows like this and a lot of folks on LinkedIn will obsess about the keynote speech and yay, you got to speak and that's super valuable. And I'm not dismissing that at all. And I'm super excited for you that you get the chance to be on stage. What I want to dig into is how did you feel on Sunday as a keynote speaker after spending Saturday of filling your own cup and taking a moment to make sure you were centered and ready to go? Because a lot of folks worry way more about the stage time than they do the self-care. So in your experience and you know, in what you teach, talk to us about that, that experience of filling your own cup and doing the self-care so you're ready to take on whatever comes to you. Yeah, I mean, so it was interesting. So the the retreat was Friday evening, all day Saturday, and then Sunday morning. And I actually, I got to the event on Sunday, the speaking event, and I was like, okay, I got to like get myself in a different space because it was a little bit different of a, of a vibe and a feeling. Um and so for me, it was interesting because I got asked to do this speaking engagement after I already agreed to doing the retreat. And I told them, I said, you know, they wanted me to do it at like 11 o'clock in the morning. And I said, I really can't do that because my event goes to 11 and I'm about 40 minutes away. So hopefully next year. And I was like really sad because I really wanted to speak and within like 24 hours, they were like, you know, could you do it at 1215? And I said, yes, I can do it at 1215. So like advocating for myself and, and making sure I wasn't pushing myself so hard to feel like I need to leave this thing early so I can get to this thing on time and then feel all rushed um, is something that is really something I've found super valuable is making sure that like, I'm, saying like what I need. And if they really want me to be there, then they can, they'll figure it out for me to be there. And they did figure it out. And it wasn't me saying, well, you need to figure this out so I can be there. It was just me saying, I really want to be there. But unfortunately, like I can't, I don't want to be rushed from place to place. And I want to give myself time and space. And, and also, you know, it's going to be better for you if I'm not rushing. Mm -hmm. Uh, and and it all worked out. And if it wouldn't have, it would have been fine too. So being okay with with maybe disappointing people on a surface level because you know you need to take care of yourself first. Um, and oftentimes everything will just end up working out how it's meant to anyways. Independent of trauma and lifestyle of the things that you teach, advocating for yourself, I would imagine, is a large portion of it. Why do we have such a hard time standing up for what we need as an individual in situations like that or in other situations that we face? I will say oftentimes, especially as women, we are, tend to be caretakers. So people who tend to be caretakers for other people 
So it's not always women, but oftentimes women do play those roles. And so we're so used to giving to everyone else first, and then we'll just give ourselves whatever's left over. And it's so draining. And it's oftentimes part of what, how people lose themselves is always giving to everyone's everyone else first and not asking themselves, well, what do I want? And knowing that when I fill up my cup first, it's not even about like pouring from my own cup. It's really about giving whatever is left over. I actually had a colleague of mine share this post of a, a teacup um, overflowing with whatever, and it was all in the saucer. And it said, like, stop trying to fill from your cup and fill from the saucer. So it's not even about like, oh, you can fill from your own cup. It's like, no, fill up your cup all the way so much that it's overflowing that what you're giving to everyone else is what's overflowing, not what's in your cup. And I think that's really important. And I think a lot of people feel guilty filling their own cup. I know I do. Yeah. Uh, if you're listening to the show, I want you to listen carefully to what Michelle is going to say here, because I'm really curious if someone is listening and they don't have a full cup, they're not taking care of themselves. They aren't ready to give from the saucer. They aren't full. How do they feel like a warning sign that they need to take action? Because I want someone that's listening to, to hear from you, oh, I better do something about this. So how do they feel when they're not full? Anxious, overwhelmed, super stressed. Like It, it really is like this bubbling up up of like oh my gosh I have so much going on around me and usually it is it's like oh my gosh I have all these browsers open I have all these papers laying all over I have this meeting and that meeting and and this next one and and I mean we even talked before the show I was like I have a really full day today like I often do not schedule my time so it's back to back to back I always have a minimum of like 15 minutes in between everything I do because, and and it's, it's those little things that can make such a big difference where it's like you can still get as much done as you need to get done without sacrificing yourself. And it's those 15 minute increments is how you keep filling yourself up. So then you're not overwhelmed by the end of the day, especially if you have kids and then you're going to pick up your kids and then you're on this like stress mode and then it causes, you know, conflict and you know, all that kind of stuff too. Yeah. It's an important conversation and I'm really glad that you brought it up. So you took care of yourself over the weekend and then you went out and crushed it on the keynote stage. Super exciting. Thank you for being uh, so giving today and for helping the folks listening. Michelle Vanda, hey, great to see you and thanks for calling in. Yeah. Good to see you too. Always Pat. That's the type of conversation that I want to have here on the Pat Miller show. If you're listening right now, and you feel that tightness in your chest, you feel that overwhelm, you feel like you're running from meeting to meeting to meeting, and you just can't get it all done, that's usually a sign that you need to pull the emergency brake and do the counterintuitive thing, which is to take some time off. Thank you to Michelle Vandehey for calling in and for sharing her success and for teaching us something along the way. Also, a thank you to Paula and Karen for being a part of this episode of the Pat Miller Show. So what do you think? Do you want to call in? Do you want to collaborate? Do you have a big win that you want to share? Either way, patmillershow.com, that is the place that you reserve your time so you can be a part of this important conversation for small business owners. I'm Pat Miller, the Idea Coach, here to help you build your small business dream. Remember, it's your dream. Don't grow it alone. 
Guests on the Pat Miller Show have agreed prior to appearing that they are receiving consultation and advice that they may or may not use at their own risk. No part of this show should replace accounting, tax, or legal advice.